0: And please turn again in your copy of God's Holy Word to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, we pick pick up where we left off in our exposition of this book. We're going to begin at verse 20 and uh, go to verse 22 in the exposition of it. But I will read to the end of the chapter so that we might get the greater context. It's a very rich text for a couple of verses or a few verses, um, and I trust the Lord will bless our time in it. Hebrews 7, verse 20. Uh, Please give your attention now once again to the reading of God's holy word. These are the holy, inspired, infallible words of God, a word God has spoken in his holiness. Let us hear them as such. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest, For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once, when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us pray for the preaching of it. Our Father and our God, there are glorious things you have said to us, spoken to us in this text in such few words, and yet they are words we will revel in for an eternity, Father. And we ask your help now on the preacher who will preach something of this word We pray that the glory of it would be felt by your people now. So give us the spirit of the Lord. Give spirit to both preacher and those who will now hear the word of God. We pray that Jesus Christ would be magnified before us, that you, O Father, would be glorified and hallowed, that your name would be hallowed for the great work you have done for uh, securing salvation for your people. And we pray that the Spirit of God would be magnified for these things that he testifies of in the Holy Scripture. Father, you have said, you have asked, is not my word like as a fire and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Father, we say it is. We believe it is. And so we pray that you would send your word, you would shoot it into our hearts to do a mighty work. We ask this for the glory of God in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, to take on debt of any kind should be a scary thing for us, especially historically, biblically, when you understand the principles of debt. Boys and girls, in the old days, when a man or woman could not pay their debt, they wouldn't have bankruptcy proceedings. They would get thrown into debtors' prisons. They would have to remain there until they paid off their debt. Today, as I've alluded to already, the consequences for defaulting on a debt in our society have grown far more lenient. There are no more prisons to be sent to when you default on a debt ordinarily. uh, We have bankruptcy proceedings and so forth. And this will be another sermon, but such leniency perhaps has led to people amassing huge debt and reckless spending. Even our government seems to not know how to spend money. Perhaps the problems with leniency over debt repayment, however, as I've said, can be discussed another day. But as far as our debt to the Lord is concerned, he holds to these biblical principles that He will hold us to the debt that we owe him. And in fact, in the Bible and this is, comes to the point of contact with our text the way hell is framed is a kind of debtor's prison. In Matthew 5.26, the Lord Jesus says, Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. And of course we know our sin debt means that we could never ever repay the debt that we owe God because our sin is against God and so it is an infinite debt that must be paid. We all owe God an unpayable debt. But to get back to the idea of even civil debt Uh, in the civil realm should be something that we should shy away from. Perhaps more scary than taking on debt is the idea of being a guarantor for somebody else's debt. Parents, I don't don't recommend you become a surety or a guarantor for the debt of your children, though this is often done. Um, Because if they become insolvent or don't pay, what happens? You, the guarantor of the debt, will have to pay up. And this is, again, a point of contact with our text, and it is the most glorious and marvelous thing, for this is what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for his people. He has become, as the Bible says, as our text says, a surety for us. He has guaranteed to God that he will pay the debt that we owe him. And this is what makes salvation possible for us, that one who can pay the debt has said and pledged to God the Father, I will pay the debt for my people. And this is what makes the covenant of grace so stable and so secure. This is what makes salvation possible. This is what makes salvation something that we can rest in. Because everything that we owe God can be paid by Jesus Christ and will be paid by Jesus Christ. And not only is this something that Jesus Christ says that he willingly does, the Father has by way of an oath, a solemn oath, established Jesus Christ in this office so that we can have a full assurance that we are saved to the uttermost. It says, oh God raises his right hand and says, I will take the debt that you owe from Jesus Christ and I swear it to you so that you may rest in this hope. This is what our text teaches and that is our theme for this evening. That by an oath, The Father has established Jesus Christ as the guarantor of our salvation. Praise the Lord. And we'll consider that under two headings out of our text. First is to consider the Father's oath, and second is to consider the Son's surety or guarantee. First, the Father's oath. Now, for context's sake, as we come back into this text, you might recall that the Apostle has been drilling into our souls Psalm 110, verse 4. The 5th chapter of Hebrews and the 7th chapter of Hebrews can be considered, really, if you want to mark it this way, boys and girls, in your notes, an extended exposition of one single verse, Psalm 110 and verse 4. The apostle is plumbing the depths of that one verse as the Holy Spirit spoke to David of the Messiah to come. Psalm 110 verse 4, for your memory, the Lord hath sworn and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, like many texts in the Bible, many verses in the Bible, every phrase in this one solitary verse is packed with depth and meaning. And this is why the apostle here in the New Testament, in two chapters, has still not exhausted the depth of that verse. And why ministers are sent to preach on that verse and to preach on texts like this, so that we may explore and understand more of what the the Bible means, especially in verses packed with meaning. And so the apostle is drawing out in these two chapters, out of that one verse, uh, he is establishing the glorious and superior priesthood of Jesus Christ. To show us that God had promised and sworn an oath that one day, right in the midst of the Levitical priesthood, Psalm 110 comes. And God says, I promise you something better than this. Something better than Levi will be coming. And so what the apostle is doing here, when the Hebrews are tempted to return to the old order of Aaron, which was Levitical. That order that was fading away as the temple was preparing to fade away. He is saying, don't run back to that. Because what God has promised that is superior to the Levites is here. You think of when the apostle was writing this. And the temple was still standing. But the order of Levi was fading. You think of this. Soon after this epistle was written, probably less than two decades the temple itself and the Levites with them, with the temple, would be buried under rubble as Rome sacks the temple in AD 70. What a wonderful thing it is, right? And maybe we'll meditate on this some more. But think of all those Hebrews who, who did not apostatize, who would pick up this epistle 20 years from that point and say, Praise the Lord that the Lord did not send me back to the temple system, for it is gone. And so continuing, anyway, that aside, continuing his exposition of Psalm 110 verse 4, the apostle, and we read over our Bibles too quickly, right? We, we see here this peculiar feature in Psalm 110 verse 4 that the apostle drills into us, that the father swore a solemn oath to establish the Messiah as a priest forever. Verses, and that, that is significant. Verses 20 through 21. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he, that is Jesus, was made priest. For those priests, speaking of Levites, were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, and here's the citation again of Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord swear, see that word there, that's an oath. That's not a figure of a a speech. That's an oath. The Lord swear, he made an oath, and will not repent. That is, he will not turn back from it. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is a remarkable, uh, remarkable matter here, friends. The words of Psalm 110 verse 4 show that Jehovah swore an irrevocable oath, an oath he will never repent of to his Christ, to the Son of God, that the Christ would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And out of that, you can tease all kinds of doctrines. From that one statement, in fact, you probably have all kinds of good and necessary consequences that are coming to your mind from it, and we'll cover some of those shortly. But first, the the Holy Spirit reminds us in verse uh, 21 that uh, um, the old Levitical order never had such an oath establishing it, which makes Christ's priesthood unique, Uh, With Aaron's Levitical priesthood, when it was established, all you read of in Exodus 28.1 is, And take thou unto thee, Aaron thy brother, and his sons with him, from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office, even Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. No oath here, just direction. Certainly there was no promise given to Aaron that yours is a perpetual priesthood. None. And in Numbers 3, you will find the appointment of the Levites by way of genealogy, but never an oath promising that their priesthood was perpetual. What's the difference here with the order of Melchizedek? Psalm 110.4 says, The Lord has sworn to his Messiah that his priesthood is of what duration? Forever. 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 And why the Apostle goes here is because as as Christianity, as the way, right, is coming under attack by the Jews who will not believe, he's showing us that this is not some new doctrine that he has invented. If you don't believe that the Holy Spirit speaks through me, then fine. Here I will use the words of David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And I will show you that God has prophesied. That the Messiah would come and the old order is gone. But now let's ask, why did the Lord swear an oath? The Lord says, right, that your yes should be a yes and your nay should be a nay. And certainly that's the case with God himself. The Lord cannot lie. He has, he never has to swear an oath. We ought to believe what he says. What he says he will do. He could have simply said to Christ without the oath, thou art a priest forever. Full stop. Good and done. And it would have been. And the son of God certainly doesn't need the Lord to, <laughs> the father to swear an oath. The son of God knows that God will do what he says he will do, as he is God himself. He does not need an oath from God for his sake. So why the oath? The father does it for us, beloved. He does it for us, his people, his adopted children. He does it so that you might know just how serious he is about Jesus Christ being our high priest, being our salvation. He did it because this doctrine is vital for you to know, for your comfort and your assurance, that you can know because he has sworn an oath That our sins are freely and fully forgiven for what duration? For a limited time? No, forever. Forever. It is our lack of faith, really, that causes us to need God to swear an oath. Jesus, we can know then, can save us to the uttermost, as the rest of the chapter will say, because God has sworn that this Jesus will be our priest forever never ceasing to intercede for us. Think of, and we don't praise God as we ought, do we? Think of this, boys and girls. What a solemn thing it is that God would swear an oath for our sake. I don't think that that sinks in as it ought to. That the Almighty would swear an oath to save sinners like us and to give us Jesus Christ. That is a terrible act of condescension on the part of the Almighty out of love. And if you've been tracking along with our series in Hebrews, you've already probably remembered Hebrews chapter 6 as I have been preaching when it was revealed why God swore to Abraham. You remember that? He said to Abraham, Surely, blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. Why did God do it? Go back to Hebrews six seventeen and 18 wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a what? A strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. He did it for our consolation, friends, that we would have a strong consolation, that is, boys and girls, you might remember, a great confidence, that we would have a great encouragement, that we would be filled with hope, the hope of everlasting life through Jesus Christ. When we have issues with our assurance of salvation, friends, here are the texts to go to. Here are the kinds of texts to go to. When you doubt that you can be saved, or maybe you don't sense the seriousness of the Lord in saving a sinner like you, how can a sinner like myself be saved? Well, here it is. God himself has taken an oath to give you Jesus Christ. And he also made the oath that you might know that Christ's priesthood is perpetual and never-ending. When the Son of God took on human flesh to become a high priest over the house of God, It marked the beginning of a priesthood that will never come to an end. You know, this is unlike the Levitical order, which had no guarantee, as I read from Exodus 28. It had no guarantee it would be forever. In fact, it was never going to be forever. And it did come to an end. The Levitical priesthood was marked with temporality. It was established with weak, mere men who will die. We'll look at that next time. But look at verse 28. This is why I read to the end of the chapter. Look at verse 28 and see what the oath has secured. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. But the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the son who is consecrated forever. The ceremonial law, the Levitical law gave us priests with infirmities, sinful men, mortal men, but the oath which comes after the law gives us the Son of God consecrated forever as our high priest. And this is where I went back earlier and I said, maybe you're teasing out some of the consequences, the good and necessary consequences of this oath. If this high priest is a priest forever, what are some of the consequences that flow? And you can... Tease out a lot of the doctrines of the God-man out of it. This priest would have to have an indestructible, perpetual life if he is a high priest forever. And Jesus does. Verses 23 to 25, which we'll pick up next time. And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, and by an oath, hath an unchangeable priesthood. And here is the glory of it. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. All these are good and necessary truths. Once you understand, God swore an oath that his Messiah would be a high priest for how long? Forever. Praise God. And the only way a man can have that is if he was given the power of an endless life, which is what we heard last time in verse 16. All these blessed inferences come out of the Holy Scripture, friends. And this is a side note, perhaps, but it is truly remarkable how you can infer out of the Scripture wonderful truths. This sort of inference is found throughout the Scripture in its pages. You remember, boys and girls, that Jesus Christ used inference to prove the resurrection to the Sadducees who only would admit the first five books of the Bible. He said that when, when God told Moses that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the burning bush, he said that, whereas Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were long dead, and then Jesus says God is the God of the living and not the dead, he proved, didn't he, to the Sadducees out of the first five books of the Bible that there is a resurrection because he is the God of the living. He inferred it out of the Torah. And what do we read about Abraham's inference? Right? Remember, boys and girls, when Abraham was told to go and, and, and slay Isaac on the altar. Right? And, and, and he, he goes because God tests him in that. His inference in his mind was, even if I kill Isaac because God had promised to me Isaac and that uh, many, many peoples would, many people would come out of Isaac then God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Now the Lord stayed Abraham's hand. But see how faith moved the man to see the promises of God that God will do whatever is necessary to keep the promise he has made. And so the Lord has sworn that Jesus Christ will be high priest forever. And so his son has a life that never ends so that he can save you to the uttermost. Wonderful things in the word of God. And this is an oath that can never be reversed. First of all, God would never repent of any oath, but the apostle makes sure that we understand that. God can never repent of it. Psalm fifteen four says of oaths, and this is just for your own doctrine of oaths, he that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. You are to swear to your own hurt. That means whatever you swear, you perform no matter how costly it is to you. All right? This is where a lot of people go wrong with oaths and vows. One day they're at the marriage altar so to speak, altar, so to speak. And they say, for richer or poorer, for better or worse, and then just a few weeks later, months, maybe years, then they've completely gone back on that because being in the marriage is too costly for them. But uh, you swear to your own hurt. And if a mere creature would do that, the Almighty has done just that. He has sworn an oath that he will not repent of. He has given you the Lamb of God forever, believer, and he will never, never retract him from you. The father will never say to his son, step aside from your office. Your priesthood is now over. What would happen if he did it? We would all be lost, wouldn't we? But that can never happen. And see, he gives this for, his, for our assurance, doesn't he? He doesn't need to say it for himself. He knows he will keep his word. The son knows he will keep his word, but we need to hear it because of the weakness of our flesh. We need to hear that for our assurance that the father has sworn to his own hurt that Jesus will be our high priest forever. Do you perceive the superiority then of having Jesus Christ as your high priest, beloved? Why would we ever desire a priest of Aaron's old order when we can have Jesus The Hebrews were tempted and pressured to return to a priesthood that would end. That would have been for their own doom. To reject Jesus' priesthood is really to have no priest today. This is the problem that the Jewish people have today. They have no priest if they reject Jesus Christ. Because God has swept aside all the ceremonial ordinances found in the Levitical priesthood, as you heard last time. They are all nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.14, and we think about this historically. I was talking to a brother about some of these matters this morning. Where have all, where is the temple and all of its accoutrements gone? Buried under the rubble of that temple in Israel. On top of which, what has God done, boys and girls? He's capped it off with the Islamic holy shrine of all things, the Dome of the Rock, which screams to all of us, the Levites are ended. You cannot return to this old system. We're thankful that the Hebrews heard this word. The apostle said that he knows that they are not those who draw back to perdition. And how vindicated they must have been clutching this epistle when the Romans sacked the temple in AD 70. Their faith vindicated in God's promise that Jesus and not Aaron would be a high priest forever. And in all these things, as you think of this, you know, our faith is a very real faith, boys and girls. It's a historic faith, isn't it? These things are backed up in history. Your faith, just like the faith of the apostle here and the faith of the Hebrews who believed this epistle, will always be vindicated. Your faith in Jesus is vindicated. Those who rejected the apostle's letter, they're the ones who are doomed to perdition. But those who believe this word, which came before the destruction of the temple, their faith in Jesus Christ was vindicated. And so as yours, believer, your faith will be vindicated as well. And when you one day see the face of Jesus Christ in glory, you will find that the scriptures were right. And your uh, faith in them was vindicated. Well, what else can we deduce out of this text? There is one other vital matter I think that we ought to all grab a hold of, that this is the final administration of the covenant of grace. There is no other further administration. There is, and this is necessary because cults will plague the people. There is no newer testament than the New Testament. No newer testament is coming. No matter what the cults say, there will never be a new priesthood to arise, no matter what the papists say. The Lord has sworn to one only, Jesus Christ, thou art a priest forever. And when you go back to verse 12, it's very interesting as you consider how these things link up. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. So what's the inference then? If Christ's priesthood will never change, that means there will never be a new law. There will never be a newer testament than the New Testament. These things matter because cults, as I have said, come to snatch away the sheep. There is... Uh, This then puts an end to the, the Book of Mormon, for instance, doesn't it? There is no Newer Testament because it is Christ who is priest forever. And so, God has sworn an oath to establish Jesus as our perpetual high priest. He is yours forever. And I think to the child of God, this is one of the most glorious truths out of this text. You will never come to God Right, You'll never come before God without your great advocate. He ever lives to intercede for you. He will never cease. And this is not contrary to the mind and will of God. God has gladly sworned oath to this. So God is pleased that you would have Jesus forever. And this truth is meant to give the heirs of salvation, you who believe, a great consolation. Boys and girls, young children here, could you ever invent the Christian religion? Could any man ever invent these things? No. It really is too fantastic and too wonderful and too well knit together that God alone is the one who has created the true faith. But staggeringly, there is something even more fantastic given to us by God in our text, that he established his son as our high priest for a purpose to be our surety. And let's consider that in our last heading now. Verse 22. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. By way of the Father's oath, in other words, Jesus was made a surety of a better testament. Now, boys and girls, this might be a little bit older language. Do you know what a surety is? It's a person who guarantees something for another. I opened our our preaching this way, that if your parents co-sign a loan for you, putting their name on it, they become a surety or a guarantor of the loan. And what happens if you cannot pay your loan? The bank would collect what you owe from your parent uh, from uh, what you owe the bank from your parents because they are a guarantor for your sake. So our verse can read, "By so much was Jesus made a guarantor of a better testament." Jesus Christ is our surety for us to God. He will guarantee to God what we his people are obligated to render to the Lord. Now that right there, that thought, is a thought that will give you an eternity of praise. That he will guarantee to God what we, his sinful people, owe and are obligated to give to the Lord. All of it. Every bit of it. He is under that obligation. But he is also the surety given to us from God, which makes it even more profound and more amazing. God gave Jesus to be our surety. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gives the son as a covenant for the people. Isaiah two six. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. It is a wonderful matter, friends, that the Father was pleased to give us a guarantor. It's as though the bank says, I will give you the guarantor. What an unheard of thing that is. The bank says, you owe it to me? Fine, here, this person will pay for you. And that person doesn't begrudgingly do it. He comes and he says, yes, gladly, because I love you. I will do it. My Father The Father says, in effect, my people will be sinners and they need a guarantor for their obligations. And in effect, he asks the Son in eternity past, will you go for us? And the Son says, in effect, here am I, send me. This was a covenant that was struck between them before the world began in eternity past. A covenant freely made in the council of the Trinity. The Father appointing the Son of God to be our Redeemer, our guarantor. The son humbling himself to fulfill every debt and every obligation that you and I who believe owe to our God. And so our mediator, Jesus Christ, even that language mediator, he is the bond between us and God. He assures that both God and his elect are reconciled to one another for eternity. For every defect in us, he will make up for by his own obligation. This is no small thing that the Son of God undertook for us, beloved. You know, it's actually rather interesting, and it actually adds to what the the, the profundity of what the Son of God did. Have you ever looked at how the Bible speaks of a surety? It actually warns you, don't be one. Proverbs 6, 1 through 2, My son, if thou be surety for thy friend, if thou hast stricken thy hand with a stranger, thou art snared with the words of thy mouth, thou art taken with the words of thy mouth. Being a surety, a guarantor for someone, is a snare. And the Proverbs warn us against it. Proverbs eleven fifteen, He that is surety for a stranger shall smart or suffer for it, and he that hateth suretyship is uh, secure. Or Proverbs 17:18, A man devoid of understanding shakes hands in a pledge and becomes surety for his friend. It's rather interesting that the Bible has a very low view and actually uh, warns you, don't do it. Yet the Son of God, with understanding, took on an obligation to pay what we owe God. Knowing full well our condition, right? It's not that we can pay some of God's debt. It's that we're actually utterly insolvent, utterly bankrupt, and we cannot ever pay back God. You know, if I were to become a surety for my child on a car loan, I would do so, what? Believing that my, my, my son or daughter will pay it back and all I am is a mere safety net for them. You know, who becomes a surety for a man or a woman they know cannot pay the debt? A fool. A fool. But what did the Son of God know? He knew that we, his people, are utterly bankrupt, that we are destitute, we are insolvent. And you think on this, child of God, he became your surety knowing all that. What a thing it is, beloved. Is this a small thing the Son has done? No. After all, if you are saved, you have at some point felt your spiritual bankruptcy, haven't you? No man or woman who hasn't felt spiritually bankrupt can be saved. It's the only way that they cry out to the Lord for mercy and this this great surety to be theirs. Have you ever thought on what you owe God? And this is really an exercise not only for you to praise the Lord, but also to understand just how great the love of God is for his people. What is your obligation to him? You owe two things generally speaking. First, you owe to God perfect righteousness. You are to walk in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of your life. Luke 17:5. 175. Yet what does the Bible say? And what do you know if you have faith? All your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. All your best works are polluted with sin and self and pride. None of it is done for the glory of God truly spiritual bankruptcy second you owe to god the debt for your sin that you commit the bible says what boys and girls you should know this well the wages of sin what does your sin earn you death death very good heard it's all a young man over there mouth it romans 6 23 And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Not a single one of us exempt from that, Romans 3.23. How can you pay this debt to God? You cannot. I cannot. And so God will justly put you in the debtor's prison, the place called hell, and he will put you there forever because the least of your sins deserves an eternity of God's wrath. Three times in Mark chapter 9, Jesus Christ said, Hell is a place where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Three times. A terrible place full of terrors, unimaginable for your mind to even grasp right now. Heaven. You can think on it this way on both ways. Heaven is described in figurative terms because its glory is too great to grasp. And hell is also described in figurative terms because its terror is too great to grasp. It would shatter your psyche, friend, to understand what hell truly was. Jesus called it outer darkness and said there is weeping and gnashing of teeth forever, a lonely, awful place of torment. And the truth is, and all of us who know our spiritual bankruptcy say this, we deserve it. I say of a truth, I deserve that. That is what I deserve, friends. We all deserve hell because of the holiness of God, and our sin demands it. Can you imagine then that the Son of God saying, I will be a surety for this debt? And not just, think of this, for one person, but for all the elect of God, What a debt he must carry. Think of that blessed scene in the seventh chapter of the Revelation. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which what? No man can number. Of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. For that great multitude that no one here can number, Jesus Christ became a surety of, for each and every one to carry all their debt out of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue. And the Son of God knows each one intimately, by name, and became their surety. Is it any wonder that we will praise Him eternally for what great things He has done for us? And do you know what Christ has done to pay our obligations that he can be a surety, that he can say, paid in full, two main things. First, he performed all the righteousness that we owe to God. He fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law that through his obedience we can be made righteous. Romans five nineteen down to 21. That's what theologians call Christ's active obedience. And Jesus said in Matthew 5.17 of his mission there, in that aspect of it, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. He has come to fulfill it. What? For his own amusement? No. He came to fulfill it for you and I who are bankrupt. Our surety was made, as Galatians 4.4-5 4, 4 says, made under his law to redeem us who are under the law. Second, and maybe most dreadful, he was nailed to his cross to suffer the torments of hell for all of those great multitude that no man could number. When his soul was tormented as the darkness of outer darkness intruded upon the earth, and his soul was tormented, and he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He cried out as hell was poured upon his soul. As his body suffered, punished with the stripes we deserve and owe to God, and his soul was tormented with the torments of hell, and what theologians call his passive obedience. And we say, Behold the man who was made to be a surety for his lambs as their high priest. That is the work of the high priest there, on the cross and in made under the law. Behold, our high priest tortured on Calvary's cross to become our surety, with the Father's anger poured out upon him, because by an oath God has established Jesus Christ to be our surety, and the Father pours out all of his anger that we deserve on the Son of God. He knew what his own proverb Warned him of before he took on your debt, believer. He didn't walk into it unaware. He knew that the cross was before him. He that is surety for a stranger shall smart for it. And how our Lord smarted for it. He suffered to be our surety. And he knew he would do it. And how willingly he went. He lays down his life on his own accord. Out of love, he comes to lay down his life for his sheep. And when he said, it is finished before he gave up the ghost, it was truly finished. And that will be the theme of Hebrews moving forward, that he fulfilled every obligation the covenant of God demands of you, believer. Paying your debt of perfect obedience and paying your debt for every sin you have committed. And when he ascended into the heavens, he could present, as it were, the deed of your soul to the Father, stamped, paid in full, nothing you add to it. So that the Bible can say of a truth, a word of holiness, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in who? Christ Jesus. This is the theology behind the verse, isn't it? Because Jesus Christ is surety to those who believe. But if you're not in Christ, the reverse is true. You are condemned. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him, John 3.36. Unbelieving friend, you can never pay the debt you owe for your soul. So flee to Jesus as so many of us have. Take him freely without price as your surety. How he offers himself to you now, his life, his own self, in the gospel as it is preached, that he might be your surety before God. He asks throughout the Bible, why should you die? And really, if you take this text up, why should you die when he might be your surety before God? He says, turn to me and live. Have life everlasting and all your debt to God paid in full. Well, our text says that our Jesus was made a surety of a better testament or a better covenant. This refers to the superiority of the new covenant administration of the covenant of grace. What makes it better? Well, because by way of the Father's oath, Jesus Christ was given to us as our surety. It's a better covenant because the covenant's high priest fulfills all the obligations of the covenant in full. In that, how awful would it be to return to the administration of Moses and its Aaronic high priests, Aaron and his sons as mere sinners and mere men could never be our surety. How could one of those men, first of all, they they were not sinless, they would have to be sinless, and one mere man who is not God-man could not atone for a great multitude no man could number. Instead, the lambs that they threw on the altar of burnt offering were symbolic of the Lamb of God that John the Baptist was waiting for. Behold the Lamb of God, the surety of God, who comes to take away the sin of the world. That's our hope, friends. We praise the Lord that the new covenant administration brings us a surety in Jesus that the types and shadows of the old covenant were pointing to. It is our full hope that the covenant terms and obligations are all fulfilled in Jesus and not by us. Great illustration of this is to go back to that first covenant, the covenant of works in the garden made with Adam. Adam was without a surety in the covenant of works. There's no cosigner for his soul, so to speak. And so when he failed, he alone was answerable to God for his failure. And when he fell, the whole covenant was broken and broken it remains. So, what a better and more stable. So that was an unstable covenant, wasn't it? Because the performance of it was left to the creature. What a better covenant you now have because who is answerable to God for it? Jesus Christ, Son of God. This is what makes the covenant of grace stable. This is what makes the covenant of grace unbreakable because of the one who is its surety. It will never be broken ever because Jesus Christ was broken to fulfill its obligations. And because of that, Jesus guarantees to us his sheep eternal life because of all that he has done. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. John 10.28 How can he guarantee to us life everlasting and blessing? God has sworn an oath that he will be the high priest forever and that Jesus Christ, the one who has the unsearchable riches, the inexhaustible treasury of grace, is our surety. God has sworn, what a wonderful thing it is, Christian, that he will hold Jesus accountable for you. How could you ever be lost when God swears, I will hold Christ accountable for your soul And the son is good for it. This is the stuff assurance of salvation is made of. A looking unto Jesus is where assurance is found that he is my surety before God. And when your sins trouble you, then know that your surety stands at God's right hand and has paid it all. It is finished. Your inheritance is safe and secure in him. With all of this wonderful truth then, what folly it would have been for the Hebrews to leave Jesus and to go back to the Levites and return to that inferior administration that God's... It was a good administration, but its whole purpose was to lead us to Christ. To say it's not, it's not good to have these men. It's not good to have these sacrifices day after day, year after year that could never be a total guarantee for my soul. I need Jesus the Son of God. And so, in view of all that, the more we meditate on who Jesus Christ is, as we consider all the temptations we might have to leave him, the more we ask the question Peter asked, Lord, to whom shall we go? The apostle here is, is forcing us to come to grips with Peter's answer, that there is no one else to go to but Jesus if we are to have an eternity of blessedness. May you all then look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and we say the surety of our soul if we are in him. Amen. Well, may the Lord give us all such purpose to look unto Jesus. We'll leave Hebrews there for tonight. Please rise for prayer, if able. Our Father and our God, oh, how you must love the elect to do such wonderful things, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, how you must love your people to have this oath taken before the world began that Jesus Christ, Son of God, would be the one who would guarantee our soul's salvation, that all of our defects and deficiencies and sinfulness, would he would be accountable to, that he would smart as our surety, that he would absorb in his bosom the the very pains of hell and death, that we might have life and blessedness forever. Help us to not be stingy with our praise, Father. Help us not be slow to praise you, a God who has done such great things for us. Father, if any here are, are struggling with an assurance of salvation, open their eyes to these wonderful truths if they are yours. Open their eyes, Father, to show the love of God. Pour it abroad in their heart by the Holy Ghost that they would know just how much the triune God loves his people. Bless us now, Father, as we depart this place. Father, would you be with your people, and if any here don't know Jesus and have never heard of the wonderful covenant of grace and the free offer of the gospel, may this be the salvation to them, that you would be glorified by another voice for eternity. We ask this now.